Hey there, welcome along to the High Performance Podcast, our gift to you for free every single week. And you're in good company because you're listening to the UK's most popular podcast and platform among working professionals for real inspiration on how to perform at your optimum. This podcast turns the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So today, allow the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars, entrepreneurs and entertainers to be your teachers. Today, this is what's in store. How do you prepare for standing in front of a TV audience of millions or billions in the split second to say, actually, I've looked at it again, I'm wrong. People expect officials to be perfect 100% all the time. Well, you're not living in the real world. And when we get to the point where technology is introduced and those decisions were being made then, we've flip-flopped completely the opposite way going, this is now a disaster for the game. But 12 months previously, everybody was crying out for it. Yeah. So people still, while still entitled to opinions, we still need that balance of, you know, you can't ask for one thing and then cry foul when it's brought in and people don't like it. Yes, mistakes are made and, and we're far from perfect, but there's many other facets that contribute to a result of a football match. It's a really interesting hour in the company of myself, Damien and Anthony Taylor. When expecting perfection from anyone, you know, you really do have to be able to deliver perfection yourself. And I'm guilty of this at times in my other role as a football presenter. We hold referees to an almost unachievable level of perfection. You know, Premier League referees are the most abused and criticised of any league referees on the planet. And a recent survey showed that Anthony Taylor was the referee that took the most criticism. But as you'll hear in this conversation, he is a man who puts himself in the eye of the storm and can cope in the eye of the storm because of the mental dexterity that he's built up over years. And I'm not just talking about years as a referee either. I'm talking about years as a son and as a parent and as a husband and as someone who worked in the prison service and was responsible for the training for restraining prisoners and who was responsible for making sure that people who are going through one of the most difficult periods in their whole lives were treated with dignity and respect and understanding. And all that we want really is for you to have an understanding of him after today. Look, life is full of flawed people. You and me are imperfect. The only person we can change or improve or expect the highest standards from is ourselves. We need to stop expecting perfection from others, particularly people who are making split second decisions with the information that we don't understand in a scenario that we cannot empathize with. So I really hope that you find today an interesting conversation, not really about refereeing, but more about life. And life is an apt comment when it comes to this episode, because Anthony was the referee for the Group B match at Euro 2020, when Christian Eriksen, the Denmark and Inter Milan player, collapsed on the pitch in the 42nd minute of that game. And it was the years of training that meant that Anthony was able to deal with that situation, despite the fact that the emotional overload would have been remarkable. Um, and that's pretty much where we start today's conversation. So thanks very much for joining us once again. I really hope that you get a lot from today's episode of the High Performance Podcast. And um, I think if it if it shows us anything, it's that if we expect perfection from people our whole life, life will be a series of disappointments, grumblings and complaints. It's time for less opinion and it's time for more empathy. And it starts today with elite referee Anthony Taylor on the High Performance Podcast. Small details are big surfaces. 
tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Well, Anthony, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome along. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Let's start with, in your mind, what is high performance? I think in my mind, it's, it's about taking yourself outside your comfort zone um, and, and trying to achieve something which sets you apart from other people in, in your performance sphere. So really having the, the bravery to try something different or actually not having any fear of, of making that mistake, which ultimately you will do at some point in time. So is that a mindset that, that got you to this point? Because I think talking about the journey from being a young man who had various dreams and ambitions to becoming an elite level referee. I think you can, you can apply that across, not, not just in, in sport, but just in life in general. So I think if you look uh, from the fallout of, of the pandemic, for example, and look how particularly how my daughters have kind of come out of uh, school into college and, and towards university, the resilience of, of a lot of people has taken a huge hit in recent years. And so people are really fearful of being criticised, really fearful of doing, are worried about what other people will think. And so the more people that are prepared to go outside that comfort zone and not have that fear of, of trying something new and something different, I think that will, would ultimately drive more and more people to achieve far greater things than, 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 they, than they do. Can I talk about an incident that is not about football? Of course. But is a moment that, um, where you really had to get it right and it was actually a matter of life and death rather than a, a footballing decision, which was the, the collapse of Christian Eriksen when you were, you were in charge of that. Can you talk us through the process that you went through and how difficult it was because suddenly from making constant football decisions on the field of play, you have to deal with something quite different. I think the most important thing to to say about the whole situation was the reason that situation was so successfully resolved was because of the Danish captain and the, and the medics that were present on that day, 100%. Because the speed at which Christian was treated was a fundamental factor. But from my perspective in terms of having to manage the whole the whole scenario meant that really I had to fall back on a number of previous experiences outside of football to to try and help manage that situation. And, and there were a couple of factors. Obviously, the, the well-being of Christian was the most important thing. The well-being of the other players was important. But then also the well-being of my, my refereeing team was of equal importance to me. And he won't mind me saying, Gary, one of my assistants, he 
he'd lost his mother only weeks before we, we went to the Euros. And so that was really a real human element to, to everything yeah. that brings everything into perspective. And so in, no, in those situations, it was, it's so important to not make rash and quick decisions and more, more be guided by how everybody's feeling. And how are you feeling? Because everything is focused on, everybody's asking you what's going on, I think you're actually desensitised a little bit to, to any personal emotion because you, you're worried about Christian being okay. You're worried about however all the other players and you're worried about my guys. But then you're also conscious that people are going to be coming to you expecting to for you to make a decision and for you to be the focal point to communicate what's happening. And so trying to create as much time as possible to gain information and get a sense of how everybody's feeling it was the most important thing. And what did you, you said you fell back on previous experiences, what were they? One of the fundamental factors that drives my work ethic and commitment at this level is based on my background in the prison service, that kind of structure, dealing with those difficult situations and, and also how important life is in terms of people overcoming difficulties. And so one of my close friends, when, when I worked in the prison service, he unfortunately killed himself because of depression. And so a lot of those things, a lot of the feelings and, and my kind of instilled behaviours come from trying to make the most of what's important to you. That is why in that situation in Copenhagen, I chose to make a very direct link between myself and the players when we were trying to reach a decision on what was happening. So yes, we've got lots of protocols and procedures in place where security and UEFA people are liaising with me as the match referee. But the most important people were Christian and the rest of the players in that situation. And so I made a conscious effort every step of the way to go into the changing rooms to speak directly to the players. So I didn't rely on a, a go-between like you would normally have. You'd normally have a team liaison person. I made the conscious decision to go direct and speak to, for example, Casper Schmeichel and the Danish players into the finished dressing room to speak to Tim Sparrow and, 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 and those players to actually get a sense of how they were feeling and to have some honest interaction with them. And I think that probably helped create a little bit of time and understanding so everybody understood truly what, what was going on and, and how, you, how we could move forward with it. And how did it take you to recover from, from that incident? How ready were you to, to go again and to take charge of another game? Well, I refereed five days later. Um, so, uh, again, that, that came down to a lot of... Of course, we had a lot of support from home. But that was, that was another thing. While, while all that was happening, I didn't get to speak to my wife and kids until maybe four or five hours later when I got back to the hotel and sat down with a, with a beer in the hotel. Once we'd gone off the field, down into the change rooms again, I, I was kind of away from the rest of my team. So I'd, I'd asked one of the lads to make contact with all the, the families at home to make sure they knew we were okay. But from the moment the decision was made to restart the game, you know, we, we had to spend five minutes to, to remind ourselves, look, you're at the Euros. It was only the, I think it was the fourth game of the whole tournament. 
we need to go and finish this game. And then potentially, you know, your retention at that tournament is based on your performance in that match. So if you're not performing very well in that match, you might go home after that. And there'll be a nice moment, hopefully, in the not-too-distant future when you're on the same football pitch again as Christian well, in the Premier League. I mean, it's fantastic to, see him, uh, fantastic to see him back. And so, yeah, hopefully. You do one of the most scrutinised jobs in the world. You know, you are central to the most talked about, the most watched, the most celebrated league in the world, yet you perform a role in that league that is not the most celebrated, it's the most scrutinised. So before we talk about the specifics of your job and the way that we view refereeing, can you talk to us about the work that you've had to do personally to get to a point where you're happy to stand on a football field in front of 60,000 people with millions more watching at home and have the courage of your convictions to make a decision that you know is going to be picked upon, scrutinised, criticised? I suppose it's having a slightly sick sense of humour in a way, isn't it? <laughs> um, I like an adventure. I like trying to, to do something that is enjoyable and actually being stood in front of 60,000 people is the next best thing to, to, to play. Yeah. And I think the simplest way to describe why, why I do and what, what a lot of the other lads at our level, why they do it is if you could bottle up that feeling of standing in the, in the, in the tunnel before you walk out in front of 60 odd thousand people in a, in a big match, would be very similar to how a, a player a player would feel scoring a winning goal in a cup final or, for example, like one of the Olympic athletes who winning a gold medal in Beijing. It's purely for that that buzz and that enjoyment factor. So would you tell us about you, the origins of where of, of where this journey started then? Ant? It's something I tried when I was still a kid and I was a very, very average player at school but I, when I was at school I, I did a multitude of, of sports I, I played football I played rugby I played cricket but equally I used to travel home and away watching watching them in the old Vauxhall conference and my mother being a, a school teacher was basically give it a go or, or shut up and so I kind of took the course and, and, and started it when I was still at school so back then it it wasn't a case of look do this because it'll help you maybe with communication skills. It might help you with with uh, employment opportunities. It might equip you with some leadership skills, which all of what being involved in in, in refereeing does. It, it was basically a challenge laid down to me by my parents. So how old were you when I first started? Sixteen. Yeah. So given the culture that there was that twenty twenty study done at the University of Portsmouth that. I described a horrific stat that 60% of people that go into refereeing will experience some kind of verbal or physical abuse mm -hmm. one every two games. Was that a concern for yourself or your parents at that stage? Uh, no, genuinely it wasn't. So uh, 20 plus years ago, local grassroots football, particularly open age grassroots football, was huge. They were the days when semi-pro players, they weren't contracted to the teams on the Saturday, so they could play Saturday in the Northern Premier League or Northwest Counties, but then they could play for the local pub team on a Sunday as well. Um, and so on places like Withenshaw Park, you'd have 15, 20 matches all at, at one time. Two, 300 people stood around the side of a pitch watching it. But you were, as a 16, 17-year-old, you were refereeing players who were playing in contributory league football. So for me, that was a, 
one, it was a challenge and a big shock to the system initially, but it, it's a, that was a great, great grounding. Compare that to nowadays, open-age football to a point has dwindled significantly at grassroots level. And so the majority of football is youth and junior, which obviously then has its own challenges and complexities with not necessarily the players, but the parents, spectators and, and coaches are potentially the ones who cause more of an issue towards the, the level of abuse that happens these days. Let's talk then about this, this level of abuse. I'm sure you talk about it a lot as referees. Where do you all believe this is coming from? I don't think it's coming from one particular one particular place. So if you if you actually think a high proportion of referees at grassroots level are under the age of 18, it's kids who are trying to learn new skills, exercise, have some kind of enjoyment in football, just like all the lads and the girls that are playing. The bit I really struggle with personally, certainly with like some of the involvement I have at grassroots football, is I really struggle to understand how parents who are stood on the sideline as spectators find it acceptable to verbally abuse a 15 or 16-year-old girl or, or lad who is trying to referee a game. They wouldn't find that acceptable if, if an adult went and spoke to one of their children like that who was actually playing. Um, so that, for me, is probably the underlying factor and, and where a blame culture is really fostered and, and developing over a period of time where many people find that's just some kind of acceptable behaviour. It wouldn't happen in a workplace. It wouldn't happen in a pub. Well, a friend of mine is uh, Nick Cox, who's the head of the Academy at Manchester United, and I've heard him talk about it. I've taken that behaviour out of context, and the example he uses is, can you imagine a parent abusing the child in the school nativity play for not walking fast enough yeah. or for getting the lines? Like, it, the thought's ridiculous. And yet, like you say, it seems that... It's acceptable when you take people on the side of a football pitch. So why do you think that is the case? I think it's a cultural, historical thing. And, you know, many times I can, I'm asked the question, what people see on the television on a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon um, transpires down to, to grassroots football. And to a degree, to a degree that's true. But we're talking about parents and coaches who have gone through some kind of education process at grassroots football. So surely that, that culture has to change the culture of blaming people for, for your own failings or you wouldn't get the, the parent of a 16-year-old referee running up to the, into the face of a coach of an under-15s team going, that was a wonderful substitution you've just made or what about that player who's just missed that penalty or missed that pass? Does rugby have that problem? At grassroots rugby, I don't think they do. Because I think if um, many grassroots rugby clubs, they would simply ban the parent and ban that player from playing from the club again. Yep. And, and we can't hide behind the message that, well, it's all about people playing football. That shouldn't be the thing we hide behind if somebody's being abused in whatever, whatever kind of context. You see, I think it's all about communication. I don't think people understand your job. I don't think they understand how hard your job is. And we'll have a conversation mm -hmm. now about that to try and educate more people into what actually happens during a game of football. Sure. But I also think that communication needs to be better from a referee. I think that I think you should be allowed to talk. You should be allowed to do interviews with the media after a game, share your frustrations, share your decision-making processes, right down to allowing people at home to hear the conversation that goes on 
during a VAR decision. So it's kind of similar, right? If you do my job, you get loads of criticism. One of the best ways to deflect that criticism was when I put up a video sharing me working with all of the conversations that I have in my ear about seven or eight different people talking. And it's only then that it dawns on people that actually about 10% of my job is asking questions about football. The other 90% of my job is trying to keep a TV show on air and deal with all of the logistical elements of making television. Do you not think it's about time that we all got a better understanding of the logistical challenges of running a game of football rather than just talking about the nuanced penalty decisions? Yeah, most definitely. I, I think a good, a good starting point would be for you to take the referee course and then me and Damien can come and watch you refer. So tell me the, the biggest, <laughs> tell me then in my job, I get that, but what's the biggest mistake that I make or that the people in the media make? Or what is the biggest frustration that you as referees discuss in terms of us misrepresenting or misunderstanding your job? I think there's probably two or three areas to consider. So, of course, when you're presenting a live broadcast, you, you want to make it entertaining for people. You want people to be engaged and you, and you almost want a sense of controversy and discussion among, amongst the panellists because it would be boring, wouldn't it, for if, if, if everybody around your yeah. table would just say, yeah, absolutely, we all agree. Listen, the media love clicks. <laughs> I mean, there are, there are certain stations, radio and TV stations, that exist solely to create controversial content so that loads of people view that and that's how they make their make their mark. But actually understanding the, the perspective of the person who's making that decision mm. is fundamental to help communicate on why, on why a decision is made. So, of course, people will still probably not agree with the decision a lot of the time. But one of the reasons or one of the, one of the flaws a lot of the time when a mistake is made by a, an official is that lack of understanding of either the, the framework of, of the laws of the game which that decision is made, made under or you're basing a, a discussion around camera angles, for example, that the official who's making that decision hasn't got access to. So topical uh, examples, one of mine from, from the weekend game in, in, in City and in, in Tottenham, where the penalty that's given in the last minute for handball is a handball offence. But in real time, that can't be seen from on field because of the position where I am and the position of the other players. So from a camera that's by the corner flag, it's a really clear offence. So as long as that right decision has been reached, most people are generally happy. So using, using angles from behind the goal, which are probably normally the best angles to show whether a decision is right or wrong, that has to be used in the context that, well, the referee hasn't got the angle available to him in that split second. So that, adding some balance to the discussion would help that understanding, I think. Now, the only way we can add the balance, though, is by hearing both sides of the argument. My problem is I sit there and I have three ex-footballers, sometimes an ex-referee, um, but even the ex-referee we have only has access to the shots that we've looked at. Yep. And I think we all get impacted by seeing something seven or eight times in super slow-mo. Yeah. Even an ex-referee is impacted by that. So what you've just said there makes absolutely perfect sense. I, I don't know whether you can, but I can see the power in allowing that kind of a conversation to happen after a game. Like, is, would you enjoy that? Would you like that opportunity? I certainly can or? see the power in it, yeah. I mean, uh, it's like any conversation. There's always going to be positive and negative sides to it. And we're still dealing with subjectivity a lot of the time, aren't we? A few years ago, everybody was 
crying out for technology to help solve the the issues of subjectivity and clear mistakes. It hasn't it hasn't solved it because we still have the debates week on yeah. week. You know, the offside decisions are a, a very good example. So before pre pre VAR, every week you'd see on the television um, lines being drawn across to show a player had a with his big toe offside. Everybody's going, oh my word, how has an assistant referee missed this big toenail being in an offside position? And when we get to the point where technology is introduced and those decisions were being made then, we've flip-flopped completely the opposite way, going, this is now a disaster for the game. But 12 months previously, everybody was crying out for it. Yeah. So people still, while still entitled to opinions, we still need that balance of, you know, you can't ask for one thing and then cry foul when it's, brought in and people don't like it. But I think even that explanation is so valuable, I think. Um, and I just, the more that, I just think we need to do something because I think the way that we exist at the moment in terms of not hearing this kind of viewpoint, not even understanding sometimes how a decision has been reached, even when you're having that two-way communication with the VAR officials, it's a bit like we maybe have 10% of the information and we have to make up the other 90%. And I don't think that's valuable for us I don't think it's valuable for you and I don't think it's valuable for the, for the football fan at home. So I really want to kind of just have this very rare conversation with a current official about the real challenges of a, of a game of football. Mm -hmm. you, you can give us specific examples if you want, but could you just take us into a, a match? It's ongoing. Things are happening all around you. There's a, a penalty decision which involves the use of VAR. Just go through if you can how many different parameters are operating at that moment, what you're hearing, what you're doing, what you're thinking. So take the initial complexity of a, of a penalty decision in a match at full speed. So one, you're trying to judge the level of contact. You're trying to judge the consequence of that contact. And you're trying to then fit that into what the expectations are of the organisation and the competition that set guidelines at the start of the season. Yeah. Um, and is there any part of you that's thinking, that's a big team, those fans are vociferous? No. None no, of that. No, see, what the, are the media going to make so of the, it? None the, of so that. So this is a current, this has always been a big misconception um, that, that those factors do not come into it. Because if you're truly doing your job and focused, then you actually are not hearing the crowd. You're not. You're not aware of the the surroundings you're in. You might as well be stood on a on the local park in terms of your focus on that situation. Brilliant. So, how do you avoid the stuff then that exists beforehand? So, you hear like managers in a in a, in the week sort of talking about the opposition have got some a number of penalties recently, or they're trying to influence a ref by their comments in the media. How do you block that noise out before Don't read it? it? You just avoid. No. Don't read it. The way I approach something like that is um, I'm always trying to be on the front foot with everything. So all I'm interested in is focusing on the two teams, the players involved, yep. um, how the team's set up and how the game might pan out. And usually the, the, the challenges within a game are affected by the individual players who play in that game. So whilst it's whilst it's important to understand the the tactics of a team, because obviously a City Liverpool match is obviously end to end, non-stop, free flowing, passing in little triangles, 
feeding it through the gaps compared to two teams outside of the of the top echelons, the patterns of play will be different. So that impacts on how much running you need to do, where you might need to stand, um, your positioning around the penalty area for those those situations. But it's all about making split-second decisions using as much information as possible and then also trying to influence people to accept those decisions. Right, because that bit really fascinates me because, again, looking from the outside on that, it's easy to dehumanise referees, you know, and, and see them as um, as less than human in many ways, which mean that you delete, you distort, or you dismiss the evidence yep. that's in front of you. So... Do you build relationships with the players so they see you as part of the part of the game? Yeah, try. You've, you've got to. Yeah, you have to. Um, so, how do you go about doing that then? So, everybody's individual. So, a lot of the time, referees are criticised for being robotic. Yeah, right. And and nothing's further from the truth. If people actually spent the time to analyse each of the lads who who referee a Premier League match, for example, there is twenty two different personalities, and people deal with things in different ways. We're all from different professional backgrounds. And so part of that understanding actually comes into play with how you in deal with individual players and what kind of um, interactions you have with the players as well. And how has your background helped you in that situation? I don't know whether that's broadcastable or not, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I think sometimes that how, how you say something to somebody actually gets their buy-in to, to it. So by simply admitting that, yeah, I might have got this throwing wrong or yeah, it probably wasn't very good for me or th that kind of rehumanizing yourself instead of being dehumanized. Yeah. And that's one thing actually I, I quite enjoy at the start of the season when we go and speak to the, speak to the players in the squad visits. Right. You know, those discussions are really, 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 really good. In what respect? Just from the engagement level, so you could you know you could discuss a you could discuss a situation, you know you might be able to take the Mickey out of a player for making a mistake that's led to a particular penalty being given or an own goal being scored or something like that. But then we're also trying to get the players to understand the parameters to which we're trying to operate to. So again, if I give a decision for a red card or a handball offence, that's not because I'm I'm choosing to give that just because that's Anthony Taylor's opinion or you know viewpoint yep. of the how it should be penalized that is the opinion of the competition stroke organization that want me to referee that game and that's how we try and get some kind of consistency across the competition for people to um penalize certain offenses yep so what's your reaction when you hear people say oh the referee wants to make it all about themselves hugely frustrating because i i, I couldn't name you one person who is refereeing today in the Premier League that has that approach. Why do we feel that then? Maybe trying to create some controversy. Maybe, the, maybe part of the blame culture. Yeah. Do you think it makes people feel better if their team have lost a game of... I mean, that's the thing we have to remember here. Nobody is watching a game of football without an emotional investment in yeah, that game. Correct. Particularly the people that share their thoughts, the people that go onto social media... So we have to take that into account at all times, I guess. So let's go back to this incident. Something's happened on the pitch. Yep. Um, you've judged the speed, the ferocity. What happens next? And then you try and work out whether it's actually punishable or not. <laughs> and at this point, you've got players in your ears. Yep. 
Ref, that's never a yellow card. That's never a pen. That's never a sending off. Is there any value in listening to those players? Because often what they say when we're working together, they'll say, oh, you can tell by the reaction he knew, he knew that that was never a penalty. You could tell by his teammates' reaction. So are you judging body language and the way people are talking at that point as well? I think sometimes you can get a feeling once you've made a decision whether you've called it right or not based on how players react sometimes. Of course, there are going to be times where players and managers are trying to influence a decision and trying to get a decision for the next next time you've got to call that. But there are times where, you know, you've got a set you've got a you've got a feeling. You know, I, I had a sense that I missed I missed handball on on Saturday night. But as soon as you say to a player, I genuinely would be guessing because I couldn't I'm blocked. I can't see. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh right, okay. But then that in that situation, that's when the communication between me and the VAR starts because I, it's important for me to say to the VAR, this isn't my opinion that it's not handball. It's my, I'm telling you, I haven't got a clear view. So I need you to look at this objectively. Do you think this is a clear handball? And if so, it's important we get to the right decision. So I need to go and have another look. So just to be clear, even when those conversations with VAR are going on, the sort of the energy for that conversation, the drive of that conversation is coming from the on-field official. The energy isn't coming from back at a lot of the time you're going to a lot store. of the time the the, the first initial thing that's important is the is the feel and the opinion of the of the official on the field who's made that yeah. decision. I really want people to understand and feel the the layers that goes into a decision on the field. So would you mind just sort of going through like I see an incident I think this then I speak to the assistants then the VAR gets involved then I've got seven voices then all the way through to then a decision is made okay so uh, the situation would happen on field and then in that split second you're trying to make a judgement on what level of contact there is how that's impacted on the player either staying on his feet or falling over what the current guidelines and expectations are for that particular situation. So um, is it a push? Is it a tackle? Is it a handball offence? If it's close to your assistant, are they going to have an opinion because they've got a better view? So all that happens in a millisecond. You then are either saying, no, play on, or yeah, that's a penalty. If you stop the game, then is, it, is there a discussion needs to take place then is it a yellow card? Is it a red card? What are the considerations you've got to use then? And again, the uh, the framework of expectation, but more importantly, the framework of the law comes into play. So again, that's another millisecond. So all this is happening in the space of a second or two. And then once you've actually come to a decision, <clears throat> you've not only got VAR in your ear saying, we're going to have a look at that because that's the automatic thing that happens under un, under the process. You then may also have a couple of players chirping in your ear. You then may also have one of your team or the fourth official in your ear. And all of a sudden, you've got quite a lot of noise that you have to filter and process through. And again, this is all in the space of a, a second or two. And then... Once VAR get involved, how many voices are you hearing then? Is it just you and one other, you and two others? You and one other. Right. And 
how do you have a conversation with them to not be swayed if you're not? I mean, so it just remains that they're giving you more information, but it's still your decision. Yeah, so the, so really the conversation shouldn't be too extensive between on-field and, and in the studio. The purpose of VAR is to establish whether that's a clear error. So they one, they need to understand why you've given that decision, but they would have picked that up in, in real real time anyway. So then they're trying to objectively look at those pictures to determine has what's been decided already clearly wrong. There's limited conversation between the two, but but even them just saying, I'm checking that, or I'm going to ask you to go and look at the screen, but I need to just quickly check if there's an offside or a foul before I ask you to give a penalty, potentially. Whatever whatever you're asked to do, that final decision always rests, rests with us. We have a responsibility to make sure that the right decision is made. And if that involves going to the screen, then we've got to be big enough and ugly enough to, to say, all right, I've called it wrong. I've got a chance to rectify it now because there is nothing worse than travelling home after a game and you've made a big error which has been perceived to influence the result. And that's got to be embraced and that's, that's how elite sport evolves. That's how it has evolved. There are more, more of the major calls are, are correctly made now with the technology being there. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. See, this is fascinating to me because I, because like we all know that our emotions are, are a lot faster than our logical brain to kick in, and yet you're having to make logical decisions in an emotionally charged environment. So what sort of tricks and tips... Could you share with us, Anthony, that like listeners could use that stop them getting caught up in emotions to be able to think clearly um, and and smartly? I think the one thing that's that's helped me since the introduction of more technology is is about keeping that clear mind and 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 trying to use the the clarity of the frameworks, not only of of the laws but the um, parameters that are set to make decisions about you've made your real-time on-field judgment, 
you've got to forget about that now. You've got to part that decision. Right. So how do you do that then? How do you move on from... You've just got to really... It's a bit of self-talk and effectively say, right, that's done and dusted. Yep. If I'm now going to look at it again, I need to look at it with a clean mind yep. and actually talk through what I'm, what I'm looking at again. Where's the contact? What kind of contact is it? Where's the arm? Where's the, where's the ball hit? How does that then fit into what I need to make a judgment on? So do you have any... So when we interviewed Dan Carter on the podcast, yep. for example, he spoke about when he'd made a mistake that he'd, he'd have like a trigger. In his case, it was he'd kick the toe of his boot into the floor so he could feel his, his toe make contact with the ground. And that re-centred him to then go and make that, to have that clean mind. Do you have anything like that or any ideas? That you could so I share? certainly don't kick the floor because I might yeah. trip up. Um, <laughs> but mine is literally talking out loud to, to my team. Right. So... I'm quite fortunate that I, I usually work with the same two assistants on every single game, both here and international-wise. Right. So we've been a team for the best part of five years now, so we know what makes each other tick. So it's that talk between us. The decision's been made, you know, move on. I've made this decision because of this. Yeah. Um, I've had to change my decision because I've missed something. Fine, that happens. And that's probably the biggest, that was the biggest challenge for elite referees with the introduction of technology. How do you prepare for standing in front of a TV audience of millions or billions in the split second to say, actually, I've looked at it again, I'm wrong? Yeah, yeah, of course. Nobody thinks about that. Because traditionally in, in refereeing, probably a little bit to a, a point like some players as well, it takes probably 48, 72 hours to actually truly be honest and say, actually, yeah, I've made a mistake there. Yeah. Nobody is ever really going to come out within half an hour of a game in the example, Jake, you, you talk about speaking to somebody to say, yeah, sorry, guys, I've, I've made a mistake. It was a dreadful decision. It's only when you've gone home, stepped away, then in the cold light of day, reanalyze stuff from the different different camera angles and viewpoints and talks again with the, with the guys that you actually fun, really are honest enough to say, oh, it's a dreadful decision. And then to try and understand why you've made that decision wrong in the first place. But then when you're looking at a screen and there is 60,000 people there and you're going, I got that wrong, that does take real humility. So what what tricks can you share with us that you've learned of being able to admit fallibility and then move on from it that like listeners could take away? I think humility is, is one of the, the fundamental things operating in, in an elite environment. The more you can say, I'm sorry, or I've made a mistake, I think that's such a powerful way of getting people's buying to what you're trying to do. Yep. And yeah, people expect officials to be perfect 100% all the time. Well, you're not living in the real world because th that kind of perfection doesn't exist anywhere. So can you give us an example of a manager then, say, that's just about to like unload on you for something and then you go, sorry, I made a mistake. And like, what's the effect on them once you do Sometimes that? Sometimes it can. It can bring somebody from there to there in a split second. Right. The same with players. The same with a player play. in, 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 in normal time, uh, you know, during the, during the, during the game. So, say, Tails, that might be, that's a horrendous decision. All right, it might be a corner instead of a goal kick or, or something. Yeah. But I might like to remind them, you know, of that misplaced pass or yeah, that yeah. missed open goal. And when you say that, what's the reaction then? A lot of the time, a bit of laugh. 
Yeah. They might not be so keen of them chasing them around for the rest of the game, reminding them of that. But... <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I remember when Diego Maradona passed away and Liam Brady wrote a brilliant piece in a, in a, in a newspaper about him where he said what he felt made him such a great player was that he never berated any of his teammates, even though he was on a different level than them. He was always encouraging his teammates rather than throwing his hands up in exasperation and reminding them of their failures. So I think it's really powerful what you're describing there, that as a referee, that actually just to admit a mistake diffuses a situation. One, one thing I probably fancy doing in my, in my last ever game as fourth official, you know, <laughs> when I decide to retire, I might, I might offer the two technical areas and the coaching staff all the advice that I've been saving up for 20 years. <laughs> what, you know. what would be the big thing you'd want to share with them? <laughs> Well, I'd just like to point out every time a, a ball's not passed right or a play yeah. doesn't mark yeah, yeah. somebody at a corner. <laughs> or or when a substitution doesn't doesn't, doesn't work. Is that a, so that must be a real source of frustration, the fact that other people get the opportunity to share their thoughts on a game. Yeah, but I think it, I think you go into a game knowing that people are going to... It's part of the psych of the elite environment, mm. isn't it? Uh, I know I mentioned before that rugby has that a different culture. It's even evident in international rugby now. The South African coach in the Lions tour was, you know, seen to be trying to influence officials quite through an ingenious way of becoming a water carrier. You know, so it's creeping into lots of different kinds of sports. So everybody's always looking for that extra edge. But I think our our challenge as officials is to, like I said, be one step ahead. If people want to try to, then fine. But we need to have strategies in place to to stop that affecting us. I remember reading a brilliant story years ago where about Ferguson when he used to go into the referees before European games and see if he could test the pressure of the ball. And when he was doing it, he'd okay. sort of be saying to them, oh, their wingers are fast and he needs to be careful of offsides today. And he'd be trying to sow seeds of messages in a subtle way. But you've got this dichotomy of you want them to understand that you're human and therefore fallible, but you've also got to cocoon yourself away from them trying to influence you. So when would you stop that process of interacting with a manager or a player, you know, on a game day. Yeah, so I think it's ta there's a time and a place for everything. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's very predefined times for meetings. So an hour before is the meeting meeting of the, the manager or team rep. So that, yeah. th at that moment in time, you're engaging there. But from then, you have no interaction with, right. with people. You're in your own little bubble in terms of preparing for you getting changed and warming up and, and talking through your last-minute bits and... Bob's with the right. with the guys, and then very rarely now, certainly over the pandemic times, been very rare that you've actually had post match interaction with people. But I think sometimes it's that's probably not always the best best time for people to interact. You, you see that in media interviews, don't you? It's not always the best time to be interviewing a player or a manager after a game. And what's your process after a game for reviewing your own performance? Because again, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of people who are not referees but want to learn about how they can review their own performances with absolute honesty for themselves a little bit better. What what do you go through? Yeah, so I think going through the decisions that are scrutinised the most, and we, and we know what they are because they're, they're very plain to see following games. You need, you're needing to evaluate those objectively and so not necessarily taking on board everything that's said on the, the analysis shows on, it, you know, and anybody who chooses so you won't to read, read the papers media. before a game, but will you watch no. the the TV coverage and very, very the reviews rarely. afterwards? Right? Very rarely, because we have our own 
we have access to all the the footage that we need through our own system. So it's more important for me to work out have I made the most accurate and best decision in for, for, in that particular situation. And there are plenty of times where where I haven't. <laughs> and what do you do in those situations to make sure you learn? So, like I said, it's it's more about trying to prevent those mistakes happening it again. So you, you will never eradicate the subjective element of of decision making. You, you, you want, it's very rare that you have a a situation, particularly in a an elite match, where you get one hundred percent total agreement on the on, on the right outcome. But everybody's obsessed with is it right or is it wrong, and everybody forgets that eighty ninety percent is falls into that grey zone a lot of the time. So who, do you have people you speak to then? So that's a select group of people whose opinion you really value. So I'll be obviously speaking to, to the two lads uh, that I work with on, on a regular basis, Gary and Adam, and even between the three of us, we sometimes we don't agree. You've always got to try and keep that clarity in your mind to work out, okay, I have made this bad error here, so I need to make sure when I go into my next, next game, I'm not doing that again. And how, if you've had two or three games running where you've made mistakes that you're unhappy with, how do you not allow that to get you down or to lead to you asking questions of yourself, whether you're good enough? Well, I, I think it's impossible not to mm. get frustrated and down a little bit about it. So it's either a, a, a case of detaching yourself altogether from from what you're doing and getting away from football. So, so thinking along... Um, Working on the mindfulness aspect of uh, of stuff. So, does that involve friends, family? Does that involve just going for a walk with the dog? But then, you've obviously then got to focus. Then, when you get you're going back onto the field, and that's probably the bigger challenge is if you have come off the back of two or three games where you've made a mistake or you've had to go to the screen a number of times because you've had some difficult matches. You've then got to start creating that belief again to start afresh. So how do you do that? A lot of it, for, for, for me personally, comes down to to, to that self-talk and, and and trying to totally forget about what's happened before. So what sort of things do you say to yourself then, Anthony? When you're oh, I just whitter away to myself. <laughs> um, just purely about being focused and, um, and as a game's going on, I just like to commentate to myself effectively. Right. Um, of what, what, I'm, what I'm seeing, what I'm going to do, or if I'm not going to do it. And if, you di if I'm doing that, it also helps the, the rest of the team understanding what I'm doing. Because I think actually some of the worst mistakes I've made over the, over the years is when I've metaphorically jumped in two feet, shot from the hip, and just pulled a, pulled a, a decision out of nowhere that absolutely nobody understands. Can you give us maybe a decision that you still reflect on now and think, silly idiot getting that wrong? Because I know oh. that people will listen to this and How go, How long have we got? Yeah, but <laughs> it's all very well Anthony's sitting there and telling us about his processes and asking us to understand refereeing more, but what about this and what about that? And they will start to sort of cite specifics. And I think it's powerful if you could ex just share with us a, a moment that went wrong and why. So mo most of the time, you make an incorrect decision on the field because your 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 position is wrong, right? That your angle and your, your views not as good as it could be. So there's a there's a really good example from a, a few years ago at Swansea where where I gave a penalty for handball, 
and it was actually handballed by the attacker. But because because in that particular moment I'd lost concentration, I was lazy, I'd got totally the wrong position, the angle you're looking at is it just makes it look like the defender handballed it. Now, people listening to that will go, well, that's just a ridiculous way of explaining it. And how can you not see that the handball is by the attacker? Well, my challenge to anybody who thinks that is to truly understand the process you've got to go through. Give it a go, because it, it would even happen in junior football. You will sometimes totally misjudge something in a split second. And so that's, that example at Swansea was was down, down to laziness and, and poor positioning, pure and simple. And how does the scrutiny process work after the game? Because I think this is something that also leans towards the resilience you have to have to do your job. I mean, you, you literally have someone give you a mark, right, and tell you how well you've done on that day. We have two people give us a mark, not just one. So we have, uh, we have two parallel analysis systems. So we have a technical system that grades every single decision that's made in the, in the match. So you end up with a percentage accuracy. But then we have the parallel system is, is run by the Premier League. So it's, it's not a technical evaluation. That's, that's where an ex-player or an ex-manager is there looking at your performance from a, from a playing perspective. And that, that system is what the clubs feed into as well. They have, a, they have a say in what their opinions are. And so everybody's got an opinion. On, on what's going on. And sometimes those opinions are formed which don't actually fit in with what lo- the laws of the game are. We might be using interpretation from four years ago. So it's all well and good scrutinising, but we, you still have to have that balance to truly understand what's being analysed and why. See, but what I find fascinating here is that we're talking a lot about mistakes that you've made and errors, and yet... 80 to 85% of your decision-making is correct and is right. So how much time do you spend looking at what you've done well before you start to look at where you could I improve? spend a lot of time. Not many other people do. Right. <laughs> it's higher than that, though. Like, what is it? Because yeah. I know you have a number at the end of a season. It's yeah, figure-wise, I'm not too it's sure. It's up in the but, 99%. Right. But you're right, and it goes back to what Jake was saying before. Everybody only focuses on, on the right and the wrong. Mm. Yeah. Yeah? And if one decision's wrong... That one decision, if we're being brutally honest, that one decision hasn't cost the result. It's not cost the team the result. It might have played a part, but there's lots of other facets that have contributed to the result. Players missing an open goal, players missing a penalty, substitution or tactical changes. Um, The emotion reactions of making people do things wrong. So again, I'm not saying we don't have some kind of impact in, in terms of making a wrong decision. Of course we do. But again, that, that, that balance, one refereeing decision mm. doesn't, doesn't oh, settle the match. You know, this, what this is making me think about is that I've done 10 years of presenting football programmes, maybe 60 or 70 games a year. That's over 500 games of football I've hosted. I don't think we've ever analysed a brilliant refereeing decision and talked about how on earth did he see that? How did he get that right? How did he deal with the pressure from the players? How did he cope with the crowd in that moment? How did he communicate his decision to get the players back on side? Never, not once. There's two or three examples from last weekend's matches where goals have been scored 
because the referees are uh, allowed play to continue after something's happened and the team's benefited from it, but nobody wants to talk about it. So what message would you, would you like to share in given this opportunity with people? How would you like us to view referees? More understanding and more empathy. So yes, mistakes are made and, and we're far from perfect, but there's many other facets that contribute to a result of a football match. And so before you start trying to blame one individual, maybe try and consider. Very difficult, I appreciate, objectively after a team's lost, but you know, consider the, the things that go into what's been decided and try and understand why something's been, been done. And of course, people will always use the argument about consistency. People highlight a catalogue of uh, situations that may have gone against one team. But again, that, that's sometimes very biasedly slanted. But again, that comes down to what we were saying before about when you dehumanise somebody, you delete, so you don't see what they've done, you either distort it and yep. claim that they're biased against your team or you dismiss it as, oh, they just had a good day. So I think what you're describing there, Anthony, is when we see the human behind it. So I hear referees talk about sort of Brian Clough from back in the day that he used to sort of say to his Nottingham Forest team that you have to be better than the worst referee in performance. You have to treat referees with respect and courtesy and he'd fine any of his players for swearing at a referee or being disrespectful. Are there any managers out there that have a similar philosophy to what Clough did that do have that empathy? There's plenty of people that have empathy. Plenty of people that have empathy. I think sometimes it's just a cheap shot to say you're rubbish or you've, you've cost us the game. Yeah. I get that because, like I said before, not many people like taking responsibility straight away for, for, for what's happened. We're exactly the same. You know, we will defend a decision to the hill in the initial stages, but that's, that is human nature. It's only with time and a clear head that you, you'll truly recognise what it is but and it's very easy for somebody to take to a keyboard and say well this is a dreadful decision or or this and 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 this applies to not only fans managers coaches ex-referees as well i always like to take things outside of a football environment and take it into a work context so whatever job you do would you find that acceptable behavior towards you in your workplace i, I very much doubt you would Thank you for sharing those, no, those reflections. Um, we've reached the point where we move on to our quickfire questions, and this is going to be interesting. <laughs> the first one we go with is, what are the three non-negotiables that you and the people around you need to buy into? The three pillars of which you live by. Okay, so honesty, humility, and commitment. Very nice. If you could go back to one moment in your life, what would it be and why? Probably work harder at school. <laughs> would you? Yeah. Most definitely, because actually the, the reason I say that now is because with obviously both our girls now progressing through A-levels and into university and, uh, and as a parent, you find yourself saying, you need to do this, you need to work hard, and you're thinking, well, I never did that when I was that age. <laughs> so. We can all relate, we can all relate. <laughs> uh, how important is legacy to you? Legacy. So I think it's important that we have a positive impact on other people. So I think it's important that we can instill some, that I instill uh, values and strong ethics in, in not only my kids, but 
people that I have contact with in not only in sport but in the local local community and just the bottom line of trying to help other people get better. What's been the biggest sacrifice you've made in pursuit of high performance and would you make it again? I think it's not the sacrifice I make, it's probably the sacrifice your family make because you end up away from home a significant amount of time and even when you're at home you might be in your own your own world either dealing with something you've made a mistake on and trying to recover from it or things are, you feel things are going that well that you're wrapped up in your own little bubble and you're, you're kind of neglecting what the, the family needs. So I, I would say the family probably lose out on more than or sacrifice more than what I would sacrifice personally. And our final question, which um, is kind of your last message really to people that are listening to this, and we frame it as what's your one golden rule to living a high-performance life? Having no fear. At all? So have no fear at all of making a mistake or admitting you're wrong. That has been a, a fascinating conversation. When you think that we've gone through the processes that are involved, the scrutiny, uh, the sacrifice, the, the moments that have shaped you along the way, I think to hear a current professional referee talking in this way, sharing the challenges, talking about the need for more empathy and more understanding... Um, I'm just left with two overriding emotions, really. The first one is a huge thanks to you for being brave enough to do it. And I think, you know, a lot of people necessarily wouldn't want to put themselves in this position, but I'm just left thinking I'm, we need to hear more. We need to hear referees more often share their frustrations, share their decision-making, share their challenges, because it's only through shared experience that we will all have more empathy for each other. We can't have empathy for people we don't understand. And so anything that any of you can do to help us understand you more um, will, be, will be good for the, the world of the referee, I'm certain. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Owen. Damien. Jake. I really just hope that um, people come to that, not with a mindset of, oh, but he's a referee, I'm going to disagree with everything and I'm going to point out the games I remember where he made mistakes. I hope that they listen to that and then think, you know what, of course he's made mistakes because we've all made mistakes. Everybody's flawed. And maybe we just, maybe that's the start. It certainly isn't going to change things in any great depth, but hopefully that's just the start of us talking about the role of a referee in a different way. Yeah, definitely. I think he kept coming back to um, the three stages of humility that we've spoke about on the podcast before. Stage one is get beyond peak idiot stage as fast as you can. Accept that these are referees that are human, that they're going to make mistakes. And if we can accept that, we get into stage two, the valley of humility, where we where we look at them and empathize. We see that they're taking on huge decisions at a fast pace you know, with a huge amount of scrutiny. And then the third stage is we could then have the, uh, we're at the hill of knowledge where we can understand that sometimes mistakes happen, but they're fallible, but they're doing their best. But as you said, 99% of the decisions they make are the correct ones. And I still come back to the fact that I can do a better job and the pundits I work with can do a better job and the media at large can do a better job and the football fans generally can do a better job at being more tolerant with referees and having less opinion and more empathy. But I still believe fundamentally there needs to be a change with regards to the referees being allowed to talk in that way and to share in that way. I honestly think if, if they were allowed maybe two or three days after a game to 
release a video where they share what went on in the game. So Mercedes Formula One team, they do a brilliant weekend debrief where the lead race engineer from Mercedes goes, okay, guys, this is what went down this weekend. And sometimes they've blown the race. They've messed up the strategy. They've lost the Grand Prix, right? But they go, right, so this is where we lost it. This was what we thought was going to happen. This is what actually happened. And this is where we made a mistake, right? If a f the best Formula One team in the world in recent seasons can do that, why can't referees come out on a Wednesday filmed by the official you know, association so it's safe and it's controlled and they say, here's the breakdown for the weekend? I think it'd be amazing because again, that phrase that Anthony spoke about, about it, it, it makes somebody personal rather than dehumanise them. And I think if you see that these are people like us that care passionately, that work incredibly hard and that are sometimes fallible, I think there's not one of us would then once the emotion of a game has gone out of it, have any failure to 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 be able to empathise and understand. So, no, I think anything that sort of brings the human to this aspect is a, is a big part of high performance in any domain. And in this instance, we're talking about a referee. But actually, people need to understand this is about anyone. You know, the person that you share an office with, um, the colleague that you don't get on with, the pupil at school that you can't control, the teacher at school that you don't like. You know, let's take Anthony's story. Former prison officer who was an expert in restraint techniques. A parent, someone who obviously wanted to be a footballer and didn't make it. Someone who's had to have the, the graft and the determination to be a referee at international level. Someone who dealt with what a period looked like it was going to be the death of a footballer on a football field. All of these things is what makes him Anthony Taylor. But we don't see Anthony Taylor, we see the ref. Yep. And... I suppose if you take that, that's a dangerous stereotyping in anything when we talk about people, if you were to just describe somebody based on their race or their gender, it's the thought of it's abhorrent to anyone listening to this that, of course, you wouldn't make a judgment based on that. And yet that's what we're doing when it's just a referee. Based on his job, yeah. Yeah, and it's so easy then to fall into a trap and making sweeping generalisations and stereotypes that bear no relation to the reality behind it. And I tell you what, more tolerance, more understanding, more empathy... I guarantee you there'll be a correlation between that and more correct decisions because there will be no decisions taken in fear. Yes, absolutely. And hopefully, I also think that if we could see that at the top level, the ripple effects down to grassroots, where it's young young boys and girls that are trying to just keep fit at weekend, be involved in sport, don't have to be demonised or abused by people on the touchline thinking that's acceptable. So there you go. I hope that's given you plenty of food for thought at home. Thanks, Demo. Thanks, Jake. We've now reached the point of the show where um, Damien and I get to talk about you, the people that listen to High Performance. And we had a lovely message on Instagram from a guy called Jack, Jack Forster. He said, I'm an avid listener of your podcast. I'm going to be attending the live show in London, which is on Wednesday, if you're listening to this on Monday. He says, it would be amazing if you could do one of those everyday conversations about people doing amazing things who use what they learn and take it to personally push to their own limits. So Jack is doing something he tells us on Instagram about race across America. It's a non-stop ride from the west coast of America to the east coast, which is 3,175 miles. And one part of the ride has an elevation of 170,000 feet. And he says on the message, if you want to scare people, that's five times higher 
than Everest. Wow. Firstly, why are we doing it? Well, to achieve a huge goal and to make people understand that you can break the mould and you can set limits and you can achieve personal greatness. And also, well done to him. He's raising loads of money for Paul Bournemouth and Christchurch Stroke Unit for some vital equipment that they need. So, Jack, thank you very much for uh, reaching out to us and pinging us a message. And Jack, thanks for joining us as well on the podcast. Here he is. Jack, how are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me, guys. I'd love to know, because you said on your message about the everyday things that people use to push themselves to to the limits. What do you believe you're going to be diving into or drawing on when you're taking part in what sounds like the most remarkable adventure? Because I think that it'd be great for the listeners today to hear what you will delve into, because they may well find that they need to draw on similar reserves in their own lives. For me, I'm quite a like a family guy. I'm very driven, but I'm a very family guy as well. So it will be the, the draws of, right, we're suffering, we're suffering, but I've got my little boy at home and my little boy's seven months old. Um, so it's that kind of thing for me where I'm going to make him proud. He'll be on the handlebars of my bike and I'll be doing something for him to say, look, you can do this. Anyone can do this. I'm not your average cyclist. I'm 17 and a half stone. I'm six foot three. Probably should be playing American football or rugby. But in choose, I decide to wear Lycra and ride a bike across America. Um, and then through my, per- my, my professional background of um, owning a gym in, in, in Paul and Bournemouth is that I push people every day. So I hold myself accountable to those guys where they hold themselves accountable to me when I'm asking for them to deliver. We're always coaching when they're training. So they, if they're able then to see their coach going one step beyond driving, asking more of themselves, they can then hold themselves to me as well. Now, there was a really intriguing um, part of your note that you submitted to us, Jack, where you spoke about that in this race that you're doing, 40% of the people that start it never finish it. I was intrigued by that in terms of why you shared that piece of information and how you're going to prepare to be in the 60%. So my family are um, all like, they're either serving Royal Marines or um, former Royal Marines. And that goes back to grandfathers and great granddads as well. So there's that mental resilience that is just embedded within us. It could be within anybody. And I truly believe that it's, and that's what we try and do at our gym. We, you know, we show, we test people to say, Hey, look, let's go one further. So I'm me and my brother are going to just dig deep on that and say, you know, at the end of the day, everything has to go downhill. It has to stop climbing sooner or later. It's going to go from one day to two days, just keep turning the pedals, just keep putting the pedal in front, you know? And then when, you know, cheerfulness in the face of adversity is one of the, you know, Royal Marines sort of like mottos, as you would say, it will get better and the race will be done. You know, the sun will shine. It's just raining right now. It's about having that smile on on your face because that will infect everybody else then. Brilliant. Um, I'm going to give you a bit of advice, not from me because um, this is not the sort of thing that I do. But we're going to be joined on the podcast in uh, in a few episodes time by a guy called Ash Dykes, who's one of the most remarkable explorers to ever walk the the planet. And this is what he told us. And I think this might be quite useful information for you, Jack. This is what he told us about how he deals with really big challenges in front of him. Have a listen to, to an episode on its way very soon. 
I focused on those four days that I believe I can stay alive, I believe I can walk to that next community, which was guaranteed as confirmed not only water source, but a community of people. And I still had four remaining days left. And I'm a big believer of the, the law of attraction, visualization, but I couldn't visualize four days. I was in agony, but I could visualize 100 meters. And again, that's when the break in the goals that I, I could see 100 meters. So there was no reason why I couldn't get up from out of my trailer, strap my four point harness on, walk for 100, maybe 200 meters if I was lucky, and then rest under the trailer again. So that's um, Explorer Ash Dykes. You can expect his episode on the podcast very soon. Useful information, perhaps, Jack, for how you can see the individual challenge in front of you rather than being daunted by the whole thing. Yeah, no, so uh, it, funny he says that as well because my dad breaks it down as well. When you're in training for the Royal Marines or when you are doing this bike ride, it is, it's the same kind of thing, but I got taught it differently. It's get to eight o'clock in the morning, get to nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that, that, um, that hits home quite hard actually so tell us as well about your son because you're obviously going to use the, the desire to be a great father and a great role model for him as inspiration tell us a little bit about how that can fuel you so like my my biggest inspiration and my biggest role model is my dad so and it, and you know other people have different things but for what he's achieved in his career and for what he stands for and for how he's brought my sister my brother and myself up um he is my you know biggest role model and if i could be sort of like i know it's cheesy to say but if, if i'm half if i'm half the man my dad is then then my son kobe is is going to be absolutely fine but i want i want kobe to be able to stand there and say my dad's done this I just want him to be able to stand in front of people and say, my dad's that, and he can do that. Sounds a bit cheesy, but it's just what drives me. It's just to make him proud. That's brilliant. And look, I hope that you take the podcast with you. I hope you're listening as you travel. Um, and, um, you know, if you've got any dark or difficult times. Actually, if you've got any tough times on that climb, which episode would you go to? What would be your go-to? Well, the Bear Grylls one, but the John McAvoy one, I keep listening to it over and over. I think it's because he's in that that sporting background and for something I just, I think is just his whole story just hit, well, didn't hit home because I've not been a uh, mastermind criminal, but um, it, it's just something to it just drawn me straight in and I've just taken so much from it. So it'll be, it'll be his podcast. All of us on High Performance wish you the very best. And where can we keep up with progress and things? So we've got our Instagram, it's uh, called Pedals and Pasties. And then our um, GoFundMe page as well, Jack and Alex take on Race Across America. Brilliant. Pedals and pasties. Right, people, check out their Instagram. And um, they're raising money for vital equipment for um, a stroke unit at a hospital near them. And um, I hope that that really, uh, really is a successful trip for you in many different ways. Thank you. Thank you. I love hearing from our listeners Damien it kind of it's just a really good connection to the kinds of things that um this podcast is doing for people and actually I find it it's quite good at focusing the mind on the kinds of guests and the kinds of questions that we need to be asking isn't it yeah definitely I always find it really humbling you know when you when people invite us to go on a training ride say with Jack or on a dog walk or sometimes on their commute or something like that 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 they choose to invest that time and allow us to come along with them is is always really humbling. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it forces us to think about what's the kind of messages that that Jack would appreciate listening to when he's uh, when he's uh, engaged in one of those activities is a uh, is really good reminder for us. 
So he wants to do that ride. And it sounds like one of his big drivers is his son. And not being at all critical of that because that is brilliant and well done him. And, I'm, and I really hope it's a success. Is there an inherent danger? And what research has been done about it where the reason for us to do things is for the approval of others even if it is our own children yeah i think it's a it's a good point you make jake that it's that old saying that don't put the key to your happiness in somebody else's pocket so there will be times i'm sure where um jack's son like my son does and like your son will do at some stage where they reject us or our messages or they sort of rebel against us so i think just understanding that that We've got to get our own approval before we look to get anybody else's. We've got to make ourselves happy and proud before we look to make anybody else do that. And I think the biggest message from all our guests has been just behave with integrity and our children will hopefully see that and that and that's what will resonate longest. And I guess that great phrase that Phil Neville shared with us, which is do the best you can with what you've got where you are. I think one of the nice things about that is that it almost removes any need for external approval. Because if you can just make sure that every decision you make and every day that you live, you can tick off doing the best I can with what I've got where I am, you literally can't do better than that. So even then, if you don't get the approval that you're seeking, or if people do reject you, or if you do have a difficult time with certain people in your life, if you can just go back to those three pillars of the best you can where you are with what you've got, I think it, it removes the need for any approval. Because you can say to yourself, well... Literally, what more could I do? Yeah, you know, somebody else's opinion of you is none of your business because you can't influence that. That's their decision. And, like, we've got that chat coming up in a few weeks with Dr. Wrong and Chatterjee that he, he shares a phrase that uh, I heard it originally on his podcast where he said, if I was you, I would have made the same decisions. If I'd have lived your life, I would have come to the same conclusions. And that just says that somebody else's judgment of you is based on lots of different factors in their life and that are nothing to do with you. So I, th I find that quite empowering because, like you say, it brings you back to that idea of just focus on yourself and what you've got and the moment you're in. Very nice. Um, there's also a bit of feedback for us, Damien. This is uh, a message from someone who came to our live show in Edinburgh. They said they loved it. It brought everything together. Um, They've had a really bad start to 2022, a breakup from a relationship that they thought was stable, which blindsided them. They were assaulted earlier in the week whilst out celebrating being released from self-isolation. Um, so they said they were glad they came along to the show because it really helped. They said all the advice I've had over the last six weeks was brought together perfectly. I understand now I must take responsibility for my part in the breakup as no relationship is without faults. I now know I can create a better, more confident version of myself and feel truly inspired to be the best I can. Life is 5% what happens to you and 95% how you deal with it. So thanks for all the great work you do, says Rory and Lee. He also came to the show and uh, his favourite moment was the fear of failure or the anticipation of success. And that was a that was a quote from Steve Clark, the Scotland manager. I'm still sort of reflecting on on Steve's searing honesty in a position where you're judged all the time. I'm so grateful he came on the show. Oh, I thought it was amazing. I thought that there was no side to him. Like we were lucky enough to speak to him before and after the show. And I think what people saw on that stage was exactly what we were seeing beforehand. Just a man completely at ease with himself. You know, I love that idea that he said, I'm not on social media. I don't seek validation from anyone other than my own family. And knowing that when I put my head on the pillow at night, I've done the best job I can do. It goes back to an earlier discussion we were having a few minutes ago that I just thought it was fantastic. 
Wonderful. Look, Damien, thanks as always for that. Enjoyed it. No, thanks, Jake. I love it. It's been a real privilege, so thank you. And uh, for those that don't quite know how this works, we tend to record these little conversations on the Friday ahead of releasing this episode on the Monday. Um, so if you're listening on the Monday, I hope you have a great week. And it means, Damien, that in five days' time, we'll be on the stage at the O2. I know, that's great. Ah! <laughs> well, I keep saying the O2 when I tell my mum, but then I think she, uh, I sort of miss out that I think we're in the side cupboard. Just at the side. <laughs> It is a side couple with 2,000 people watching, but yeah. yes, it is. I just like saying we've sold out the O2. <laughs> some of my mum and like, some of my family, like mum and dad, I've said, yeah, yeah, it's a sellout of the O2. So they're going to be disappointed <laughs> when they come along and they walk in the main arena. So I goes, no, 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 sir, through this door here. Yeah. Um, thanks very much, buddy. No, thanks, mate. Um, and it's been a privilege, but I'm really looking forward to the show as well. I think, I think it's been a real delight to meet so many of the listeners and listen to their favourite guests and what they've taken away from it. So I hope London's the same. Brilliant. And thank you all for, for joining us for the UK's most popular podcast and platform among working professionals. We love the impact that we're having among all of you. Um, if you enjoyed that conversation that we had, not just with Anthony Taylor, again, amazing to get a current referee to come on and talk in the way he did, um, but also the chat with Jack at the end there. If you're listening to those and you want to share your thoughts on the podcast, on the episode, on the listener who's just been with us, on the thoughts that Damien and I have had, please reach out. You can find Damien at Liquid Thinker. I'm at Jake Humphrey. The podcast is at High Performance, all on Instagram. And you can also watch as well as listen to the interviews. Just head to YouTube, type in High Performance Podcast, subscribe, and you'll get the episodes there as well. Remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. Be your own biggest cheerleader. Make world-class basics your calling card. Thanks very much to Eve, to Hannah, to Will, to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio, to Gemma, to everyone who's involved in making the podcast work. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.